commercial, yeah? It was part of Disney's huge uh, marketing push over the last couple of years. I'm not sure that it's still running, but it's very recent. Uh, and while you may be familiar with the commercial, what you might not know is that uh, the song running behind that specific commercial and how that contributes to the message of the ad. It's a song by the band One Republic, and the title of the song is The Good Life. And so while you've got all of these perfect families enjoying smiles and all the magic of Disney, you've got this chorus that just replays over and over again. Oh, this has got to be the good life. This has got to be the good life. This could really be the good life. And so it doesn't exactly take a Harvard MBA to figure out what the message of that commercial is, does it? I mean, we could probably recite it. And it's that if you want the good life, you got to go to Disney. Absolutely. If you want the good life, you got to go to Disney World to experience it. And I have to tell you, uh, and if you've been to Disney World, you can certainly attest to this, they do a pretty good job uh, of, of creating what so many of us think to be the good life, don't they? You've got the sunny skies of Orlando, you've got a, a parade and a character greeting around every corner, these quaint little shops, the food is delicious. Uh, it's just, it's really, really a great time. As a matter of fact, my family and I had the chance to go to Disney World around this time last year. There's a little picture. Yeah, Topher looks like he's getting eaten by Eeyore, but he's, he's really not. So uh, we, we, we had such a good time. We made lifetime memories. And, uh, and so for at least five magical days and five magical nights, we got to experience uh, that version of the good life. Here's the question, though. What happens when the plane leaves sunny Orlando and flies back into cloudy northeast Ohio? I mean... Can we really continue to experience the good life by that definition, at that level? I mean, is the, the good life really defined by fast passes and character greetings and really magical moments that are almost impossible to create in the real world? I mean, those are good questions because the truth is all of us here probably want to experience the good life. We want to define the good life based on certain presuppositions that we might have about what it means to live the good life. And so what we're after today is the right perspective, the biblical perspective on what the good life actually is. How do we get it? How do we keep it? What is the good life? That is going to be our journey through the Bible this morning. So I'd like to pray for us and then uh, we're going to get after it together. Father, what a privilege it is, truly, to, to even ask you to speak to us. And an even greater mystery and an even greater wonder is that you would answer us and you have through the pages of Scripture. So I pray that you would give us ears to hear, give us minds to think and hearts to obey as we pursue your truth together, we pray for Jesus' sake. Amen. All right, let's get after it, guys. Uh, meet me in your Bibles in the book of 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 3, and we're going to continue in our series called Growing Up Together. Uh, if you're going to use a pew Bible, grab it, uh, page 1015 is the page you can turn to. If you don't have a pew Bible, you're welcome to take that one home with you. It's our gift to you if you need one. Um, 1015, 1 Peter chapter 3, and we're going to be in verses 8 to 17 today. What is the good life. Well, the first area straight away uh, that we will observe from this passage is that the good life is doing good to other people. The good life is essentially the life of a do-gooder, someone who does good to others. 
Let's launch into this passage. Uh, Take a look down at verse 8 with me. Finally, Peter says, All of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. So after Peter, uh, back in chapter 2, talks specifically to citizens uh, who are living under the authority of human government, he speaks specifically to employees who are working with unjust employers, and and then he speaks specifically to husbands and to wives, and then here in verse 8, he kind of goes back up to 30,000 feet, zooms out, and he says, finally, all of you. So he's speaking to every person in this church and to our church today about this idea of the good life, specifically that it means doing good to others. And the first place that Peter says this ought to be worked out, that we ought to demonstrate this doing good to others, is within the church. Doing good to others means promoting harmony within the church. Within the local community of God's people, we do good, and we do good by promoting harmony. And then in verse 8, Peter throws out like a handful of notes that we ought to be singing in order to sing in harmony. The first note that he gives is he says to have unity of mind. Some of your translations might even say harmony there. It's a phrase that means sharing the, the same thoughts, sharing the same values. Our minds might be drawn back to uh, Acts chapter 2 where we know that, that all the believers were together. They had all things in common, this really pure fellowship, unity of mind. He also says to have sympathy. Now, this is not some kind of phony, pretentious sympathy. He's talking about a real, genuine understanding of what someone else is going through. And not just an understanding, but but a drive to actually go through a difficult time with someone. Real, honest sympathy. The third note of harmony is brotherly love. I'm sure you know this, but the local church is really a family, isn't it? I mean, when God calls us into fellowship with his son, when he effectually calls us into relationship with him, he also brings us into this familial relationship with each other. And so we really are brothers and sisters in Christ. A great book on this subject is Life Together by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Pick it up and read it. Put it on your summer reading list here. He says that the Christian brotherhood, this idea of singing and brotherly love, is not an ideal that we must realize. It is rather a reality created by God in Christ in which we may participate. I wonder if you find yourself really participating in the community of God's people, in this theme of brotherly love. I mean, certainly you're here this morning, and and that's a wonderful first step. I have to tell you that this idea of a churchless Christian that's becoming more and more popular these days is totally foreign to the Bible. You will never find a churchless Christian in the New Testament. We are called to participate in the reality of community together. So that's step one. Are you participating? But as you participate, are you known as someone in this church, at Old North Church, who sings in harmony with other people or someone who sings in dissonance? You know, when two notes just don't sound right together. Great application for us this morning. Uh, Two other ways, two other notes that we can sing to promote harmony within the church. Peter talks about, in verse 8, having a tender heart and a humble mind. You talk about endearing characteristics, right, of promoting harmony with the church. Compassion and humility. As we think about all these characteristics, especially this idea of compassion, we ought to be drawn first and foremost to Jesus, Right? I mean, what incredible compassion he showed to rebel sinners, those who were set against God's ways, totally detached and removed from him. He showed us incredible compassion 
in that state of mind, and he exercised humility by becoming one of us and, and, and going to the cross on our behalf, incredible compassion and humility. Uh, there's, there's another person, too, that I think about when I hear those words tenderness and compassion and caring. And uh, that's my friend and colleague, Pastor Rick Enlow. Uh, there is a reason why that man oversees the care ministry here at our church, because when you look in Rick's eyes, you see tenderness and compassion and a desire to promote this kind of harmony within the church. I, I share this next little story by permission, uh, but Rick came up to me early in the week, and uh, I knew something had just happened to somebody because I could tell by the look in his eye. And he shared with me a young family in our church that just lost everything that they had uh, in a house fire, really bad house fire. DJ and Bethany Beck, I think they're here today. And it, it's an incredible tragedy. It really is. And, and Rick just was broken in his heart. And as we thought and prayed for them, he immediately began talking about how can we come alongside of them, along with their family and friends, to bless them and to show brotherly love, to show compassion and kindness. And you know what? That's exactly what has happened this week. It really is. I mean, we've had diapers come in and clothing and monetary donations. And while that does not blunt the edge of this tragedy, it is a way of promoting harmony together, loving each other, caring for one another. Just on Thursday, BJ sent me uh, this picture. He said he was kind of rummaging through the, uh, the, the rubble from the the fire, and, and he found this. I don't know if you can see the, the words, but it's actually one of our Old North Growing Up Together cards. Yeah, it's incredible. And, um, and the reason that I'm showing that to you is, is not like a Jesus face in your grilled cheese sandwich. I mean, it's not that kind of weird thing. But what, what I want to emphasize to you is this. When we promote harmony together and show compassion and care for one another, we are growing if you want to grow up together, we have to sing harmony together as a church. It's a beautiful sound when harmony takes place, and this is what Peter is calling us to do. But he doesn't stop there. It doesn't stop just within the church, this idea of doing good. Doing good to others also means returning hostility with blessing. Do-gooders bless people that mistreat them. Verse 9 says, look at it with me. Do not repay evil for evil, or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you are called that you may obtain a blessing. No matter how counterintuitive this sounds, and it does sound totally counterintuitive, Peter says the good life, the life of doing good to others, means returning hostility, harm, with blessing and good. We all have uh, physical reflexes. If I were to grab one of those little uh, hammers and go up to Pat here and tap on his knee, the bottom of his kneecap, what would happen? His knee would kick back, right? His leg would kick out. I mean, that is the natural, I mean, if I'm honest with you, that's the natural response. When someone slanders me or my family, when they, when they harm me intentionally, I want to kick. Sometimes literally, you just want to kick them. But what Peter is saying here is that when someone at school starts a rumor about you, or when someone at your job steps in front of you after having worked for weeks and weeks and months on a project, they step in front of you to receive all the credit, when someone slanders you or your family, don't kick back, is what Peter is saying. And he roots that kind of counterintuitive return of blessing in our Christian calling. Did you pick it up at the end of verse 9? For to this you were called. 
I mean, part of our, our calling as a Christian, part of the good life is returning hostility with blessing. Uh, one more layer here as it relates to doing good to others from this passage. Uh, Peter also shows us that doing good to others brings a blessing in return. When we commit and, and follow that path of doing good, both within the church and toward those who are hostile to us, there's a blessing that comes in return. Look down at your Bibles, the end of verse 9, for to this you were called that you may obtain or inherit a blessing. And let's keep going because then Peter launches into this incredible quote from Psalm 34, verse 10, for whoever desires to love life and see good days, that's the good life, right? Let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. I mean, this reference from Psalm 34, and this is a big quotation in a pretty small letter, so we've got to pay attention to it, is, is a way to further illustrate that the good life is simply a life of doing good and not doing evil. And that by making that commitment, it, that kind of life brings a blessing from God in return. Now, just a, a quick word of, of clarification here. The blessing that Peter is talking about here is not some kind of works-based salvation. He's not saying do good to earn points with God. The only points that are acceptable to God are the points that Jesus has earned and that can be imputed to us as we trust him by faith. Those are the only points that count. We can't earn enough points. So Peter is not talking about here obtaining our salvation by works. We're not working for our salvation. However... We are working out our salvation. Ed Clowney, who has done some great work on the idea of biblical theology, wrote a commentary for 1 Peter, just a little quote that I think is so helpful for this part of the passage. He says, God who calls us to inherit his blessing also calls us to follow the path of peace that leads to blessing. That's very consistent. Doing good to others brings a blessing in return. Now, as, as we talk about this idea of being blessed in return, we, we have to be careful that we don't swing the pendulum too far over because we, we so often have these ideas about what blessing actually is, that, well, you know, if I'm going to do good to others, then, you know, that's going to lead to just a, a beautiful, carefree life all the time. What Peter's going to do in this next section of our passage here is reorient our thinking a little bit in, in saying that the good life is not the same as the carefree life. The good life is not the same as the easy life. As a matter of fact, the good life is doing good within the blessing of suffering. What? The blessing of suffering? Those two things don't go together. Actually, they do, Peter shows us. There's actually blessing in our sufferings as we remain eager and steadfast in doing good. Look at the next paragraph there, beginning in verse 13. Now, who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? Well, that's the right question, isn't it? I mean, who would possibly come against you if you're doing good? But, verse 14, even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be, what does it say? Blessed, that's our word. There is a certain blessing that comes in the face of suffering, particularly suffering for righteousness' sake. Peter says, this is still part of the good life. We haven't left the good life. This is part of the good life. And if we keep going in our passage, we'll see how this paradox connects together. The first way is that suffering drives us 
to rightly reverence Christ as Lord. The blessing of suffering is an opportunity to set Jesus apart distinctly as Lord in our hearts. It's on your outline. You can write it down, take a look at verse 14 and 15 as you do that, but even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, meaning don't be afraid of those who are coming against you, nor be troubled, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, verse 15. And that little phrase is is really rich. Some of your translations say, sanctify Christ the Lord in your hearts. Others say, in your hearts, set apart Christ as holy. And and these are all just different angles to look at this same beautiful treasure of truth. Because suffering, you see, has a tendency to, to put the pressure on us, doesn't it? And when the pressure comes on, what really matters, what we're really afraid of, what we're afraid of losing, what we're afraid of gaining, tends to leak out in our lives. What we really reverence and honor as God tends to come out when we suffer. And so what Peter says here is for the Christian, this special place of reverence, this sanctified place, belongs to one person, one object. And that person is Jesus. He is uniquely, distinctly the Lord, and we're to set him apart. That's that's what the word sanctify means, you know. I mean, rightly, when we hear the word sanctify or sanctification, we often think of our development in Jesus after we become a Christian, the way that we grow, which is a way to use sanctification. Or we think about positional sanctification, how we've been moved from a position of being set apart from God to being with him and in Christ. And that's a right usage also. But here, Peter says, sanctify Jesus. What does that mean? It means to set him apart as distinct. Set him apart as distinct. You know, I use uh, sanctified towels when I wash my car. I really do. They're, they're sanctified. They are set apart. They are unique. They are distinct. I do not wash my car with, uh, with dish towels. I don't wash them with the, the towel that we use to wipe the dog's feet when he comes in the house in April and, and it's all wet. I definitely don't use paper towels. I use my sanctified towels. They're microfiber, super soft. They're just fantastic. They're sanctified towels. What we're to do, Peter says, is when the heat turns up in life, when suffering comes against us, we're not to fear the people that are bringing harm to us, as tempting as that is. We're not to fear the outcome of that suffering, rejection or loss or slander. We need to distinctly and uniquely set Jesus apart as Lord in our hearts. That, Peter says, is an evidence of the good life. Now, as we're, we're doing this, as we're, we're setting Christ apart as uniquely Lord in our hearts and in our minds, something happens. Opportunity comes knocking. Because the fear of men will paralyze you, but the fear of God will mobilize you. And this is another one of these layered blessings of, of suffering that, that Peter's showing us here. It's just the blessing of suffering also provides us opportunity to share our great hope. The good life, you know, is a life of great hope. And, and suffering gives us a platform to share that great hope. It's remarkable when you suffer what opportunities you have to share the hope that you have. Let's keep reading because this is rooted in the passage. Verse 15, in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet, do it with gentleness and respect. Having a good conscience so that when you're slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. 
For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Some of you might recognize this part of our our broader passage as uh, the quintessential proof text for something called apologetics. Have you heard that word before? Apologetics, it's just a word that means to to make a defense. It comes from the Greek word here, apologia. It's the word that that means to make a defense. And, And I have to tell you, it is so important, so important for us to understand foundationally and also in practice apologetics is all about and to engage in the process of apologetics clearly the text this is not just a call for pastors this is not just a call for theologians this is a a call for all Christians Christianity is a faith of the mind so you got to know why you believe what you believe because as you suffer Peter says you're going to have the opportunity to share this great hope and so I I want you to read authors like C.S. Lewis and Tim Keller, and even going back hundreds of years to guys like Thomas Aquinas and other modern guys like J.P. Moreland and William Lane Craig. Their books are in the library. Get them, search them on Amazon, and know why you believe what you believe. That's part of the good life. It's also really important to remember uh, something as it relates to apologetics that we often forget, at least I do, uh, and that's that this idea of apologia, making a defense for our faith, for the hope that we have, is set within the context of suffering. It's so easy to forget that when we talk about apologetics. At least it is for me, but that's exactly where Peter sets this. Suffering is a springboard for apologetics. It's amazing the opportunities that you will have. And we can, as we do that, as we share that great hope, we do it in in two specific ways. You can write them both in on your outline. We share a great hope with our words and then also with our actions. When someone asks me a question, like, how's your day? Um, it would be rude of me to just kind of look at them and turn around and walk the other direction, right? I mean, when someone says, how's your day? The appropriate thing to do is respond, right? Respond with words. I could either say it's been a great day or, you know what, it's been a crummy day. But the point is that I respond, right? We respond when someone asks us a question. Well, in verse 15, when someone asks us for a reason for our hope, we need to respond. We need to be prepared to do that verbally, giving an answer. And, and again, Peter, with great pastoral wisdom, nuances this. You know, he says, listen, get the car moving, but there's a little restrictor plate here. Verse 15, do it with gentleness and respect. I mean, we need to be careful, especially those of us that get really excited about this kind of thing, that we don't become more concerned about winning an argument than we do about winning a person. There's a professor down at Southwestern Seminary in Texas that teaches apologetics that says the goal of apologetics is not to lay the smack down on non-Christians. I mean, that's, that's not what we're after here. I mean, the idea, truthfully, is to understand the opposing positions of people that don't agree with us. Tim Keller says that's one of the very first steps in apologetics, to learn the opposing position in such a way that your opponent says, yeah, that's, that's pretty much what I believe. And then we engage in that subsequent conversation with gentleness and respect. There's a lot of, uh, of hurdles here that, that prevent us from doing apologetics, a lot of hurdles to jump over. I'm going to give you five. Okay, you can write them down or you can just listen. Uh, indifference, intimidation, ignorance, inconsistency, and hopelessness. I couldn't think of five that begin with I. I was probably pushing it with four. But indifference, intimidation, ignorance, inconsistency, and hopelessness. Now, one of those hurdles might really resonate with you this morning. I mean, maybe you're here and there's... Truthfully, if you're honest, there's just not a real conviction that this stuff is important. 
there's not a conviction. You're kind of indifferent to the fact that we need, either need to be prepared and we also need to have these conversations with people with respect and with gentleness. But to be intelligible and comprehensive in our understanding of what the gospel is and what some of those pre-evangelistic questions are. How do we even know that God exists in the first place? These kind of questions. So maybe there needs to be a deepening conviction or, or jumping over that hurdle of indifference. For some of us, and, and I think this is a big one in the church, maybe even a big one in this church, if I can speak that specifically, and that's the ignorance one. I know you've been a Christian for 25 years. I know. I know you've lived it and breathed it, but I wonder if a million bucks were on the line if you could articulate the gospel. I think today is the day to swallow your pride, to go over to the library, to pick up a copy of Two Ways to Live, and to study it, and to learn it, and to know it, and to practice it out loud with your wife and with your kids. I know it's ridiculous, but that's how you learn something. The gospel is news. It's tangible information that we communicate with our words and with our actions. Two ways to live. You can pick it up if you'd like to. Great, great application that comes from this today. I know this is hard stuff. I know it's intimidating stuff, and I know it's not easy. But remember, the good life is not the easy life. It's the good life. We might, you know, as, as, as consumption people, we may think about it that way. We think that the good life means the easy life. Not, not in this setting, not set in the, the context of suffering. Let me illustrate it for you with a little parable. Here's how it goes. Uh, there was an American, wealthy American businessman, and uh, he took a trip down to Mexico on a little vacation. And as he, he, he got into this little village, it was a real quaint little town, very relaxing, a little bit remote. And as he's walking through the center of town, he comes across this humble Mexican fisherman who has this display table uh, displaying the fish that he caught that day. It was really impressive. And so the, the American businessman stopped and admired the table. He admired the fish. And he said, hey, can I ask you a question? He said, how long did it take you to catch all those fish? And uh, the humble Mexican fisherman, who apparently spoke perfect English, um, it's a parable, okay, <laughs> give me a break, just, just go with me. He, he responds, he said, yeah, I, I don't know, maybe an hour and a half or so. You know, the American businessman responded, he goes, oh, that's, that's interesting. He goes, have you ever thought about working longer hours? Have you ever thought about how many fish you could catch if you worked more than an hour and a half a day? The Mexican uh, fisherman responded, he said, you know, I, I, I suppose I have, but you know what, I've really got the good life. I really do. Let me tell you, I mean, I wake up in the morning, I have a cup of coffee, I, I go out to the pier, I, I go out on the water, it's so relaxing, I, I'm there for a couple hours, I catch the, the, the fish that I need here to sell, and I go home, I'm, I'm a, I can take a nap, a siesta with my wife every single day, we often share meals in the evening, and then and a lot of nights I get to go into town here, and I bring my guitar, and I play my guitar, and have a glass of wine with my friends, and boy, it is just, I got the good life, I'm not sure why I'd want to do that. So the... Uh, the wealthy American businessman armed with his uh, MBA and capitalistic training says, uh, okay, you know, I can respect that, but uh, think, think about this for a minute. I mean, if you, were to, if you were to work a few more hours, then you could catch more fish. And, and if you caught more fish, you'd make more money. And as you made more money, you could hire a few guys to come and work for you. And eventually you could buy a couple of boats and you could catch more fish. And more fish means more revenue. And, and you know what, if you really stick to it, you might even be able to pick up a warehouse here. You could probably get it for cheap, and then you could, could store these fish and distribute them, and you know, you'd be a wealthy man. Now that, that would be the good life. The humble Mexican fisherman kind of nodded and says, oh, you know, it's something to think about. He goes, but then what would I do? Now the 
The American businessman thought for a minute, he pondered and scratched his chin and he said, well, he goes, then maybe you could, could go buy a villa in a quaint little village somewhere and you, know, you could get up and go fish a couple hours in the morning and be home for siesta every afternoon with your wife. You know, you could have dinner every night with your family and go off to town and maybe play a little guitar and have a meal with your friends and you could live the good life. I mean, you, you picked up the irony of the story, obviously. I mean, but this theme runs throughout it and the theme is that the good life is the easy life. Right? The good life is, is the life of consumption, the life of luxury, the life of ease. But what Peter is showing us here in this passage is that that's not ultra-realistic, is it? I mean, consumption will only get you so far, and life is not easy. Sometimes you suffer for doing what is right. But Peter says when you endure in that suffering, when you press on and you use that as an opportunity to rightly reverence Christ as Lord and share the great hope that you have, all of a sudden suffering becomes a blessing. Suffering becomes part of the good life. It's incredible. There's one more dimension to the good life that we need to talk about before we close this morning. And truthfully, it's the most important. The good life is without doubt a life of doing good to others. It's a life of doing good in the midst of suffering. But ultimately, and and this is the, the big idea of the morning here, don't miss this. The good life is the gift of God through the gospel. The good life is the gift of God through the gospel. Meaning, it's not something that we earn. The good life isn't something that we can earn or work toward. It's a gift. The good life is not something that we produce in and of our own strength, in and of our own moral goodness. It comes from God and God alone. And the good life comes through the avenue of the gospel. This idea that Jesus sets us free from an old life in sin and slavery to ourselves and our selfish pursuits, and and he brings us into a new life a brand new life with him as Lord, the good life, the truly good life. Look down at verse 18 of 1 Peter 3. I really, I want you to look at the text with me. And while Pastor Al is going to take this entire section next week, I want to resolve this question about what is the good life from the first part of verse 18 here. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. There's the gospel. Why? So that he might bring us to God, into fellowship with him, into a relationship with him. The good life is the gift of God himself in the gospel. And so I want to close by reading a little excerpt from John Piper's book uh, called God is the Gospel. It's a great little book. Here's what he says. The Christian gospel is not merely that Jesus died and rose again, although he did. And it's not merely that these events appease God's wrath, forgive sin, and justify sinners, although it does. And it's not merely that this redemption gets us out of hell and into heaven, although it does, but that they bring us to God in the face of Jesus Christ as our supreme, all-satisfying, and everlasting treasure. And then Piper quotes 1 Peter 3.18, Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. You see, friends, God is not only the giver of the good life, although he is, he is also the object of the good life. He's not only the supplier of the good life, he is the subject and substance of the good life. We are set away from him in our sin and our rebellion. And what does Jesus do? He brings us to God. The good life is the gift of God himself. He is 
the supreme blessing of the gospel. And because of Jesus, because of Jesus' work on our behalf, if we believe by faith that his work is sufficient for us, we are brought near to God. That is the essence of the good life, life with God. And so as we come to the Lord's table this morning, let's come remembering this truth, that the good life is the gift of God himself through the gospel. Let's pray. Father, how thankful we are to be here together as a group of individuals that are united because of the work of Jesus, to think through what it really means to, to live this good life. As we remember Peter's quotation from Psalm 34, who is it that desires to, to love life and see good days? And what does that mean? Lord, I pray that you would bury in our hearts these truths, that the good life is a life of doing good to others, singing in harmony with those that we call brothers and sisters in Christ. It's a life that, in a counterintuitive way, returns hostility with blessing, receiving a blessing in return. And Lord, thank you for the real truth that the good life is not something exempt from suffering, because if that were the case, then we'd never experience the good life, because this life is hard. Certainly, you are familiar with that as we think about the person and work of Jesus, becoming a man, becoming a person, experiencing sorrow and suffering and hunger and loss and pain and, yes, even death. And within suffering, we, we thank you for the blessings that we have the opportunity to rightly reverence him as Lord, to not fear those who seek to do us harm, to not be afraid of losing a bit of reputation or a bit of substance, but to really fear you and to reverence Jesus as the one who is in control. And certainly, Lord, the blessing of being able to share that great hope, to share the hope that we have. Father, forgive us for living like hopeless people. We've been given a great hope. In fact, we've been born again to a living hope. Help us to share it with our words, with our actions, with lives consistent of those who have been called into your wonderful light. Father, above all else, I pray that we would remember that the good life is a gift and it is the gift of yourself, the gift of coming back into a right relationship with you. Though we rebelled against you and ran away from you, you pursued us relentlessly through the work of your son. Good life is a gift. Help us to remember that today as we come to the table. In Jesus' name. Ushers are going to come here and serve us. We're going to receive uh, the Lord's Supper together. Just want to encourage you to, to go ahead and hold those elements until everyone has been served. Then I will read some scripture. We will pray and we will with great sobriety and much rejoicing participate in the elements together. God bless you.